From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of The Groundsman. Joining me as always, my two fellow groundsmen, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. And we have to say, fellas, that today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Web3 Sports Ventures. As pioneers in next-gen sporting ecosystems, these guys help empower fans, celebrate athletes, and enable innovative stakeholders across the sporting landscape. To explore the future of sports with Web3 Sports, please visit w3sv.xyz. And that being said, let's welcome the other two groundsmen, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Roger, come in, mate. How are you? I'm very good, Grant. Uh, good to see you. Good to see you, uh, Giles, as well. No, it's great to have those guys on board. Um, I spent some time with Wade in Madrid recently and we just hit it off and, you know, he's telling me all about what he's trying to do. So it's just fantastic that that Giles, who also knows him very, very well, um, managed to talk about them being involved for a whole year of supporting the groundsman. Fantastic. Gilo, how are you, my friend? Well, I'm good. I'm a bit windswept. The, the United Kingdom is being battered by yet another storm, but um, otherwise I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm hale and hearty. Though I've been put on a... Um, but put on a health drive by the missus, which is very disappointing as we end and in, go into February. So um, it's 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 no more no more boozing on a Sunday, which is probably going to do me the, the world of good. Well, you're, you're, I have to say, Joe, your hair shows no sign of you being windswept, so you hide it well. <laughs> you hide it very very well. Uh, so, Jens, we we have a we have a very very special and very topical guest joining us very shortly for this first uh, uh, show of the new year. Um, Jyla, why don't you explain to people exactly who's going to join us? Yeah, I think we we start groundsman off with an absolute um, banger. I think, oh dear, Roger's fallen over. He's c- overcome with excitement. Um, Sorry, no, his yeah. age, you know, it happens. It happens. <laughs> it does happen. Yeah, you're right, Roger. Yeah, you know, yeah, I just yeah. dropped my just- glass. <laughs> Oh no, we'll get the nurse <laughs> no in. Get on the nurse Sunday. in. We'll get the nurse in. There she is. Okay, as long as it wasn't right. a, a, a urine specimen, we're okay. <laughs> anyway, enough of this tosh. So we're joined by Danny Townsend, who is the CEO of Surge Sport Ventures, which I guess is the sports investment arm of the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. And that's known to all of us who follow the Live Golf story as, as PIF. And PIF really has been and is the megabucks engine room of sport and will be, I suspect, for the next eight or nine years. Surge was set up in August 2023 with Danny as its first ever CEO to focus in on on sport and tech, which is designed to encourage participation and interest in sport in Saudi Arabia, in the region and beyond. And there's probably few better people than Danny to, to take the reins. He's had a hugely long career in sport. He was actually a professional footballer um, in the 90s. He was a winger who played for Sydney United and then Paramassa Power. And he retired at age 23 due to injury. And, and he started in sport with the, with the Australian Jockey Club. And it was there he became a co-founder of a business called Repucom, which right the way through the 20, early 21st century became really one of the real measurement driving businesses for sponsors like HSBC to try and work out what sort of media, what kind of awareness, what kind of drive they were getting. And and he built that business into a big concern before it was sold uh, to Nielsen, and I think about 2015, where he then became the group CEO. But the lure of the manly northern beaches where he he was born and raised, he he went home um, to become the CEO uh, initially of Sydney Football Club, and then that kind of morphed into the whole of the A-League, the, the, the Australian Soccer Professional League, which he ran. Um, an enormous journey that then everything changed again for Danny um, when he was asked and interviewed to, to, to go to Riyadh and to set up Surge. It's an amazing journey. I think his journey has not even remotely finished. I think there's many more chapters to come. So why don't we bring him on the show and find out all about it? Danny, a very warm welcome to the Groundsman. How lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on, Giles. It's great to be here. 
Well, our first question is, uh, we, we, we talked a few, a few weeks ago, you had to take the entire Townsend family, pick them up, drop the news that you were moving from Australia and moving to, to, to Saudi Arabia. How's the move gone? How's the house? How's the apartment? Everyone settling in all right? Yeah, well, it's a bit easier, actually. The, the family aren't with me at the moment. They, uh, my, my wife is coming. Uh, my two daughters uh, are now at an age where they can look after themselves. Uh, probably apart from the fact they just need my money. So at this point in time, they're one, one's at university, the other one's finishing school at the moment. So we thought rather than disrupt them at this this stage of their life, they're going to stay in Sydney. But my wife will be up in, in Riyadh the next couple of weeks. And uh, I'm fully anticipating then will she redesign everything, that you've, all the furniture that you've set out, she'll move it around, get the paint sorted and you've basically messed up. Well, I don't think the people in the, who own the service department that I'm in will, will appreciate her doing anything of that nature. But um, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she'll make it feel a little bit more homely than, than, than I have, that's for sure. And a question I had to ask you before we get, we get stuck in, you, you've been, I think you've been in, in, in position for three or four months, you're finding your feet. Have you picked a football team from the uh, uh, Saudi Premier League? Have you got your own allegiance now? Who's, who, who's getting your support? Are you yeah, allowed to, I, I or have do you actually. Have to keep yeah, yeah. Well, well, we, we've got PIF have four of the teams in the Saudi Pro League, so I had sort of had to pick one of those. Strangely enough, Surge, uh, the company um, that I work for, is on the front of the El Etihad Strip, but they're a Jeddah-based club, and I live in Riyadh, so I figured I've always had a philosophy that I go for the club closest to where I live, and Al Nasser's home ground is the closest one. So um, for that reason, I'm an Al Nasser fan. And have you been to a few games? I mean, you, you got stuck in straight away, knowing your background in football and love of the game. Yeah, I have. I've been to a couple of games. I haven't, you know, I've been busy travelling a lot since I've been there, but um, a couple of times that I had the opportunity, I went along. And the, the, the football is fantastic. The, the stadium's great. The the atmosphere inside the stadiums is akin to any, you know, high quality league that you'll have around the world. Um, so no, it was it was fantastic. Enjoyed it. Danny, Danny, let me let me dovetail in uh, from that to where you were before, because like you, uh, we have both of us run a football league. Um, what's your view about what's happening back in Australia with that league? I read in the, Her- the Sydney Herald, I think that a lot of people have been laid off and everything like that. And and the reason I ask is because I know how difficult it is. I'm the one that's always saying that difficult times are coming, polarisation, uh, Hollywood and art house. What's happening with football in Australia? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a challenging environment, um, you know, very complex stakeholder environment as well. And, and I think, you know, we have so many foundational strengths as a sport in, in that country. The participation base of football is, is you know, is the sum of all the parts of the, the competing sports. Um, so, so for that reason, there is, I, I think there's an, an, a sense of inevitability about where football end up in, in Australia. I think our our job and what we were thinking was was to accelerate that timeline, uh, essentially by the privatisation of the league. I think, you know, the current board have, have obviously gone and made some decisions in the last couple of weeks that I'm not across, but um, it would appear that they're, they're winding back some of the investment that was made in, in, in content particularly, from what I can tell, um, which, yeah, you know, is obviously their call. But I, I think fundamentally whenever you've got, and you know this, Roger, <laughs> when you've got 12 different owners of clubs who own the league with 12 differing opinions and philosophies, it's a challenging stakeholder environment, as I said, and I think that's that's part of the challenge. Yeah, before Only 12 I different you, opinions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the other things I want to ask you about, Danny, which is one of my favourite subjects, is um, your countryman, uh, my ex-coach, Ange Pognikosklu. I can never say that. Um, give us your view. Give us your view about... Um, what he's done because he, he loses a couple of games and then everybody says, well, what's this guy actually done? Scotland doesn't count. Japan doesn't count. Australia doesn't count. Tell people who Ange is in your opinion. Yeah, look, I, I know Ange um, reasonably well. You know, he coached in his, his first grand final victory in South Melbourne in, in Odin Cell. I played in that game against him and I saw him Saturday night and we, we reminisced about that that day. But he, he, He's a phenomenon. Like I think when you look at what he did, and whether you want to dismiss those countries you listed out, but, you know, I saw firsthand what he did in Australia, both at club football and with the national team, won an Asian Cup. Um, You know, he 
he transformed the clubs he coached. And he, he, he's done that everywhere he's gone. So it's not like, you know, he, he got lucky once and, and got some results and all of a sudden, made, you know, was brand, brandished a good coach. He's done it time and time again in different countries, in different um, environments, you know, to do it in Australia, to do it in Japan with the language barriers and all those things is hard and he, he took Yokohama to a, a title. So and then he's gone to Celtic and... And delivered there, and and so far, I think he's off to a great start at Spurs, and I think he'll he'll do a fantastic job. I think he'll be there for a long, long time in the Premier League. Danny, can, can I ask you, um, uh, as a, as an Australian, and having spent a lot of time down in Australia myself, um, I'm interested in uh, the sports culture because you know, growing up in Oz, sport is such an enormous part of the fabric of Australian society. I mean, it really does bind the whole thing together. Um, Everybody has at least one team. Most people have a team across every sport in the country and they follow them rapidly. Um, you know, every conversation down the pub is based around sports. It's just such a – it really is, the, to me, the glue that binds society together. So what was it like to, to come to Saudi, which – and this may be a complete um, – uh, red herring, but it, it doesn't seem like they have that natural sports culture from outside. Um, what, did, what did it feel like going from Australia to Saudi? Is the culture there? Is it something that you're really focused on trying to build that culture? And if so, how do you go about developing something that is is such a kind of fundamental part of of any league's success? Yeah, I think Charles and I had this conversation the other day. You know, when, when we all grew up in countries where as soon as we could walk, we were given a, a football, a cricket bat, a tennis racket and said, go outside and play sports. In reality, that's that's not how things have evolved in Saudi. And what they've realised is that they need to build a sporting culture and, and to do that, you've got to start by inspiring them. And a lot of the major event strategies around putting on major events, putting the best versions of sport into the kingdom to inspire Saudis to to look at participating in those sports. So that's a big part of the surge mandate is how do we invest in rights that we can bring to life in the kingdom and really start that process of changing um, the way Saudis think about sports and participate in sports. But, look, you're not going to change the culture overnight. You you can't replicate a culture. So what, you know, what's... What happens in Australia is just not practically possible to replicate in Saudi, so there's no point trying to do that. But I think when you start to build out the philosophy of the role sport plays in the community and in and in the, the social fabric of the country, you've got to start somewhere. And I think that the ambition is certainly there for the kingdom. Danny, at the top of the uh, at the top of the show, introducing you, we went through your your CV, professional footballer. You've uh, you worked in racing, you've Repicom, Nielsen, all the way through back into in, into football, and here you are now in, in Saudi, which is very much the, the the talking point of probably the focal point of the entire sports industry right now, for obvious reasons. Tell us a little bit, if you're allowed to. There you were getting stuck into um, Australian football and, and soccer, and, and really getting stuck in and. What happened? How do you find yourself? Probably, probably pinch yourself a little bit now. Going here, I am in, in Riyadh. What, what, what was the process? And 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 uh, to share that a little bit. Yeah, it was a bit of an interesting one. You know, having spent fifteen years of my working career abroad in in living in Singapore, London, New York. You know, I was you know I was obviously spent that time building a network of people in the industry. And and when you know I think the uniqueness of this role was laid out. You know they were clear they wanted someone who was an operator in in sports. Albeit we are a sports investment company, they weren't looking for a banker to lead this business. Um, they were looking for someone who'd worked in multi multi um, I suppose multi countries and on multi sports and and the, I suppose the background of, of my time at Repicom and and Nielsen was very much about that we we worked and represented you know the biggest brands in world sport Giles like we did with HSBC and and with um they worked with the biggest rights owners in the world and helping them commercialize their assets so yeah I think when they looked at the, the archetype of a CEO they're looking for um I think they they interviewed a lot of people who were one sport, one market, who were very competent executives. But the the, the specific subject matter that, that we were looking at, or they were looking at at the time, um, was was probably not as good a fit for someone like that. Whereas whereas my background, I think, was was what they liked. It was unique, I suppose, to a degree. And and um, having had experience, you know, I've worked in the Middle East before as well, which was helpful, I assume, that process. 
Um, so yeah, that that was how when I went over there and I had a look around and I saw the strategy. I saw I saw the conviction and the capacity to do what they wanted. You know, you can have a vision. We can all write down a vision, but executing on that vision is is important. And and they demonstrated to me in the time I spent there as I went through the process that they were certainly on the path of doing those things. Danny, what, what, so when you, when you got over there and you got into the process, you know, obviously as someone immersed in sport as you have been for so long, like the rest of us from the outside when you saw the beginnings of the Saudis move into the sporting world, um, you know, you would have formed your opinions like we all have without any inside knowledge. Once you got into the process, um, what are the major differences? What are the major kind of um, misunderstandings that you found from someone being outside looking in and thinking it's all about X, Y, or Z to actually getting inside the belly of the beast, seeing that vision and understanding um, the kind of seriousness that they're taking this uh, with? Yeah, look, His Royal Highness has been very clear in his vision and that vision is is multifaceted and sport is one of those um, sectors that's going to play a role in, in, in the change. And, and I think it's already doing that, you know, with, with a lot of the, uh, the things that have happened there over the last 18 months to two years, you know, the, the events that are coming there, the, the way they're executed is world-class. You know, I think when, when I look at um, the authenticity of what the Ministry of Sport is looking to do, it's genuine, you know, and, and you can call it what you like, but I think, you know, aggressive focus on social change using sport as a as a fulcrum in that strategy is is fantastic and that's that's sort of what that, that's the that's the crux of what we're trying to do with this project and and like I said it, I think the authenticity is what gets you over the line when you when you're on the inside and you and you watch the hard work that's going on the investment the you know the thinking um yeah you you it's it's hard not to be convinced Danny, let me let, let, let me ask a little bit more about that because Giles is right. For a few months now, um, the currency in the sports industry has been a little bit around how well does one know Danny Townsend? You you have replaced Giles as the person whose jokes get laughed at now. So I'm not genuinely funny, is that? No, oh, you're funny than Josh. You're funny than Josh, right? That's, I mean, it's, it's a low bar, but you're funny than Josh. Yeah, 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 okay. no, so I, so I feel slightly better. Slightly, just slightly. Danny, so <laughs> a, a couple of people have said to me, they've said to me, well, you know, you really need to speak to Danny because the strategy he's got is really quite different. And, and what 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 do I think they mean by that? I think to the the, the person on the outside of which all three of us are, are are outsiders, what Saudi has done is a little bit difficult to understand what the the strategy is. It seems a little bit opportunistic. You've got Piff doing things with Liv. You've got them at Newcastle United. Some people may even throw in Aramco Digital, and then Surge comes along. Can, can you tell us a little bit beyond the kind of like website, you know, what we do page, what is it you're actually trying to do with the asset class of sport? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, and it's one that I do think there is, is quite a bit of misconception around. And, and I think, you know, largely the reason why Surge was was established was to provide a bit of order and strategy to how the kingdom thinks about investing in sport. Um, and, you know, when when I looked at it and going back to the, the process I went through to, to get this role, um, you know, if, my question to them was if you want this to be a out-and-out sports investment company like a act like a private equity company or a sovereign fund, then you need a banker. You don't need me. I, I'm, a, I'm a sports operator. So, and they were adamant that the mandate that Surge has required someone who understands sport and how to make sport work in in a country like Saudi Arabia. So, when I did see that strategy in the mandate, which which is essentially for us to invest into global sports rights, and aligned with the uh, Vision 2030 and the Ministry of Sports Top 20 Sports. Um, to enable us to bring those sports to life in the MENA region because there's a leadership role that Saudi plays in the MENA region um, and, and specifically into the kingdom. Um, by by doing that, inspiring Saudis to, to participate in sports and start hitting some of the key metrics that His Royal Highness has in Vision 30 around mobility. So it, was, it wasn't as simple as investing in a sport and sitting on it for the next 30 years and then selling it. It's about investing in a sport that we believe can make a difference in that um, that more broader social strategy that, that we have. 
Okay, so let me ask let me ask something a little bit more specific because I can imagine all my colleagues in the industry thinking. So can I pitch Danny with my sport tech uh, little widget maker that's all about fan engagement uh, that we can say we can um, uh, engage all of the under you know thirty Saudi population, or if I'm a rights holder, am I coming to you with my tender offer? Which of the two, or is it both? It's both. I think you know when you when you look at the investments we're making. The, my my view around the attract most attractive assets in in industry are mass participation sports that serve the big markets in the world or the biggest economies in the world that have got a a rich history and sort of foundational strength to them that for whatever reason may be underperforming at the professional level right now as businesses. Either they're they're digitally nascent. Or they're, you know, they've relied heavily on linear broadcast dollars, and they're looking over the precipice of direct to consumer, and and don't know what wow. to do or, or or can't afford to do it. That's everybody, so Danny. Anything, yeah, yeah, yeah well, it's true. Yeah, it is true. It is true. But but if, but but going back to your, going back to your sports tech point, if there are, you know, if there are uh, fan engagement or commercial sports tech opportunities that we can invest in and then deploy them into the sports that we're investing in on the right side of things, then, of course, those things are naturally complementary. Um, so, you know, I think the, you know, the way we look at it is the things that we won't invest in is probably easier for me to lay out. That is things like, you know, clubs. Like if I, I can't buy an NBA franchise and, and bring it to life in Riyadh, really. Um, so the ability to look at sporting clubs that are, you know, anchored to a geography, then unless there's an angle there that will enable us to 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 do something with them, um, yeah, they're they're just not part of the mandate. So, but everything if you're a sports league or a or an event or or a technology or a media asset, those type of things, um, as long as we we can deliver something back into the MENA region as a consequence of the acquisition, then then they're fair game. And, and does that mean, just to be clear, if we take the example of the, you know, combat sports and, and Saudi's been very active in all of that and, and you've made an investment there, one of the first ones, can we translate that into something like we'll buy the rights and we will bring the actual event uh, to Saudi to take place in Saudi? Is, is that what you mean? Yeah, so the perfect example is the PFL, right, because it is our first and, and most recent investment. It is... We're investing in the PFL Topco, so we have a 30% odd holding in in PFL. But part of the way I think about our, our contribution as investors is I classify us as active capital. If you look at the organisational structure of Surge, it resembles any other sports property in the world, chief commercial officer, chief digital officer, chief strategy officer, et cetera, et cetera. So why do we have that? Because we are going to enable those businesses in the MENA region to deliver revenue growth for them. So whether that be in the case of PFL, we have a joint venture in the MENA region called PFL MENA. You would have just seen we've announced um, a big super fight, between a pay-per-view fight between um, the, the champions of Bellator and the champions of PFL after we acquired Bellator. They're taking place in the kingdom, but we'll also have five MENA league events across the year in the, in the region, which are designed to create pathways for for aspiring professional fighters to to earn their earn their trade and, and to apply their trade. And, and that is a commercial enterprise that we will bring to life on behalf of the PFL in our backyard. Danny, you um you, you told me that um as you're looking at various participation, participation is a very, very important part of this very young generation that's growing up as a new society is being born. What's been the criteria for deciding which of the sports to focus on? And why? And presumably that gets reviewed or will get reviewed every three to five years, depending on how sports are either going or what the participation level. But what, what, what has that been given, as, as Grant said earlier, this is a new culture in every sense. And these are all probably for many people. Some of them are just new sports full stop. What, what was the process? And is that ongoing? Yeah, it's ongoing. But we, we started with, we started with uh, the top 20 Ministry of Sport priority sports so that that's where, where we started we looked at those sports and we determined which ones of those sports have got 
investable assets, if that's even a word. So in some sports, there just isn't a construct there that you can buy or invest in. So you've got two, two questions to ask. Do you bypass the sport and move to the next one or do you go and try and create a commercial vehicle within a sport that would enable you to invest in it and drive returns? Um, but if, And also, do, do we see there's growth in that sport? Yeah. If, you know, is combat sports, you've got fastest growing sport in the world. It's MMA at the moment. So that made sense for the PFL. It, it, combat sports are part of the ministry's top 20 sports. So you know, there were no real pathways for elite MMA athletes in the Middle East with creating one. So all the com- componentry was there that made sense. Um, that componentry doesn't exist in every sport. Um, as you know, as we're working through them, we're look, as I said, looking at ones that we can either play a role in transforming. I think another key message, I suppose, for, for Surge is that we want to be transformative, not disruptive, right? They're very di- different things. So I think being transformative is on reflection part of the bit that I love about the job is that if I can have a positive impact on a significant change in the way a certain sport delivers its professional product and and it in time demonstrates huge amount of growth for that sport, then personally that would be very fulfilling. Um, and that's the impact we want to have. Yeah, I'm so glad you made this this distinction between um, transformative and disruptive because I think they're, they're probably the two most important words when, when it comes to understanding what the Saudis are looking to do in the sporting world from outside. And sometimes I think those of us sitting in the cheap seats can confuse one for the other. And the obvious place to start with that is live. You know, you mentioned how the idea was to go into sports where you could invest. And if you couldn't, do you move on or do you create something? And that feels like the progression of the live dynamic is that you, it seems like you approach the PGA Tour, you've got nothing back, and then you have that decision to make. And the obvious decision there was we don't move on. Sport is too big a... You know, golf is too big a sport with too enticing a demographic for us to simply move on. So we will have to create something. Um, and obviously, acres and acres of column inches about that. It's it's rumbled on for a couple of years now. You know, I've thought long and hard, and I, and I you know, make no bones about it if you listen to the show, I am a golf traditionalist and I hate the ructions in golf and all that sort of stuff. But setting all that aside and looking at this from a pragmatist point of view, um, there's obviously an awful lot of brain power as well as money inside uh, all these Saudi vehicles inside the PIF, inside Surge. So going into this, you must have all looked at this, gamed the reaction, understood, okay, we know exactly what's going to be thrown back at us. We have to push through that and we have to keep making our points and get to the other side so that this is about creating something rather than disrupting something. How far do you think you're ahead in that process? Because it certainly feels like the, the dialogue around Live versus uh, the PGA Tour has changed significantly from the early days. It feels like great progress has been made in terms of establishing the PIF as a as a credible force in the game, rather than this kind of outsider. How's that roadmap progressing for you guys? How do you like the progress you've made, and and what does it take? Do you think to get something in place where both sides can come back together and and create a product that's good for all of golf once again? Yeah, look, obviously the, the PIF's investment in, in Live Golf predated my my tenure, so I wasn't a part of, of that. Um, but I, as an observer like you you are, and it was certainly in a way disruptive for that sport. But I think at the same time, as time has moved on, the, the authenticity of their commitment to the sport is clear because it's been continued over time and doubled down and doubled down and, and got to a point where, you know, with all the will in the world, I think there's going to be some sort of resolution there shortly, which will see everything settle down into a place where golf con- continues to grow. Um, so I know I can't forecast where that's going to be because I'm not in the room in those discussions, but I think fundamentally when we look at what Live Golf did for the PIF, which was part of your question, was it demonstrated that we were serious, we have conviction, we have capacity, and we know what we're doing, right? We are sophisticated investors. We, we know we know what we're doing. And I think when I go around and speak to many, many sports that I've spoken to over the last three or four months, the front door is open because they look at us and say, well, actually, you can be a a transformative force for good in this sport. And and, and that's the bit that that I think without live, 
it was high profile and it, it did all the things we all know it did. Um, yeah, without that, I, I think we'd still be trying to tell that story. But I think what that did was demonstrated that capacity and conviction to 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 contribute. Um, and, you know, when I go into conversations with the different sports I'm talking to, I'm saying, how can we help you? How can we use our capital? How can we use our sponsorship from, you know, the the bevy of Saudi brands that ha- that want to ha- build their global reputation, like any other brand would who has global um, um, aspirations? How do we use our tourism authority and our events companies to use and deploy our host city fees to bring more events to the kingdom but also drives, you know, the P&Ls of the businesses we're investing in. That's that's meaningful for them. Danny, can I just, can I just challenge that a little, just in one small part and then add a follow-up? Um, particularly with the, this this idea of, of listening and changing, it feels, particularly with Liv, it feels um, very much as though there's a there's a degree of rigidity to that because there's been so much pushback and I understand that. Um, and, you know, Greg Norman is Greg Norman and he's never changed, God bless him. And he's very much, no, this is what we're doing. The game will come to us. We're going to keep doing exactly what we think. And it doesn't feel like there's an awful lot of responding to the challenges. And then at the same time, you've got the Saudi uh, Football League, which is handling things a very different way. You know, it's That's more of a kind of build it and they'll come approach and you've got the stars and it's very quietly going about trying to create a culture and create a business um and and build that domestically but with global stars so i'm just curious as to how whether you see a difference in the two approaches and whether you you feel like one has more chance of success than the other or because the sports are different the approaches are different if there's a unified way of doing things i'm just curious yeah, I think every sport's different for one, and, and the challenges in every sport are, are somewhat similar but different. If you think about sports that have got governance challenges around their structure that are holding them back, that are potentially going through the process of, of overcomplicating their proposition to the consumer. So when I look at the sports that, that you know, we're, we're either investing in or, or in the process of, of looking to invest in, part of my I suppose, investment thesis to support doing it is whether or not we, we think we can create something that's going to be a, a more appealing proposition to the, the fan of that sport. Simplify it. Make it very clear. You know, some of the sports today are just so complicated and young consumers couldn't be bothered. They just move on because they don't know where to watch it. They can't sit through an entire match of it. They don't know what the consequence is, the jeopardy in, in a certain match, whether someone wins or loses. Does that just mean one of them gets 50 grand more than the other one? Like that's not that interesting. So if there's a lot, a lot of sports have drifted into a position that means their product is no longer as appealing as it might have been when we were growing up because we grew up in a different environment. So... I think sometimes you're going to have to be disruptive, but if you're disruptive for whatever reason has a negative connotation to it, sometimes you do need to be disrupted to grow and to change. Um, But I prefer to use the word transformative because it does have a bit more of a positive sort of bent to it. Um, But fundamentally they're the same things. They're going in and taking something and reconfiguring it and delivering what what you would hope would be a better product. Um, and I think when you look at both of those examples, Liv certainly did that from golf's perspective, but the the Saudi Pro League is is obviously a domestic competition that, that has aspirations to be, you know, a major force in, in world football. Um, but they're going about it a slightly different way because they, they don't have the 250 years of history that you might have out of a, a Premier League football club. But what they do have is a very vibrant football culture. So they're not trying to create a football culture. It pre-existed the last couple of years of, of um, strategy shift. So, you know, when you go along to the Riyadh derby between Al-Halal and Al Nasser and there's 60,000 people at the stadium, there were 60,000 people at that stadium 10 years ago for that same match. So it's just how do we continually evolve it and the, the privatisation of those clubs is a really important step in, in that direction. Um, and I think with the PIF-owned clubs and, and Ramco's now got a club and a bunch of these these other um, successful Saudi companies are going to be investing in, in football. Um, and with that comes a level of professionalism that continues to evolve. 
Danny, I'm still thinking about what you said before about what you wouldn't invest in. Um, and, you know, then, you know, I'll come to my conclusion. Uh, if you're not investing, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about search now. If you're not investing in an NBA franchise, maybe my head works is that I think, well, you're investing in everything else. Everything else that's the traveling circus version of sport. Uh, anything where you can bring the event to you without um, the traditional local fans causing a major stink. And I'm thinking of all the Olympic sports. I'm thinking of tennis. I'm thinking of golf. Um, thinking certainly of snooker, darts, um, combat sports. Um, you're going to take all of them, aren't you, Danny? You're, you're going to take them all. <laughs> well, we certainly look at all of them. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, like I said before, investing in the sport asset class is really hard. There aren't that many things. When you really boil it down, there aren't that many things. So we're going to give it a red hot go to get as many of them as we can. Now, if you, we're not, that doesn't mean we're just going to go and pay silly money for things. The reason why we, we've set up Surge the way we have is that we'll be as a sophisticated investor as any other private equity company that's looking at the sector. The difference is we just bring a different mandate. We we can bring with us the, the power of the Saudi spend in sponsorship and marketing because they are doing it anyway, because they have aspirations to grow their brands. We, we will be investing in events to bring the world's best events to Saudi Arabia to drive tourism and drive that change in, in culture that we talked about at the start of the program. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be having a look at all of them, Roger. Danny, I, I, difficult question this because you're new and you're, you're still, you'll be learning all the ropes about, uh, about everything in one of the world's fastest moving um, societal, probably in history in terms of what is happening so fast. But I know there's a 2030 strategy and imagine if you can fast forwarding to say 2032 what does Saudi look like in terms of from a cultural point of view particularly with a sporting lens on with the kind of things that you want to do what give us an idea of what you think that might look like for us as we all dodder we'll be doddery old boys by then but we, we go to Riyadh we go to Jeddah what is it we might see in 10 years or, or, or so from now well Certainly the infrastructure is going to be very different. With the World Cup in 2034, if, if we can finish that project and, and be successful in being appointed, then there's a big development requirement there to, to deliver a, an event of that scale. Um, you know, there's aspiration for Olympics. There's all these things down the track. So you're going to see an enormous shift in facilities. And, and that's really important because, you know, if you think about take tennis, Roger, you talked to, if the kingdom you know, wanted to host a Masters 1000 event right now, there's nowhere to, to host it because you need you need a, an arena with a, a show court and 18 courts. There's, there's not 18, there's not a facility with 18 courts in, in, in the country. So when we look at these things, we're going, how do we actually change the, the culture and the participation of, of young Saudis? Well, they need places to play. So then you're looking at the, the Geiger projects like Kadir and Neom and Russian and the Red Sea project. They're all about building infrastructure that will enable communities to, to play. So as we go and look at investing in a sport, well, how do, we, how do we let the IP of that sport come to life in those facilities all around the country? So, so you'll see a huge shift in, in the accessibility for Saudis. And look, 80% of... Saudis are under the age of 35. So it's a very young population and it's going to grow rapidly. So as that population grows, younger people, there's going to be more and more younger people who are who are ideally going to be born into an environment where sport is naturally something that they're expected to play uh, because they have the great facilities to play them in. And they've been inspired by the investments that the kingdom's made in bringing world-class sport to, to the region. So I think you'll see a big shift in facilities. You'll see a lot more um, outdoor space being used for sport than you currently see see now. And I think you're going to continue to see the world's best sporting events coming through the kingdom. Um, the appetite is there. Um, and I, I don't think that appetite will go away. Uh, Tony, help me understand, if you can, the um, the process in this, because obviously we're we're all familiar with... PIF and we're familiar with Surge, but obviously, um, you know, we're looking at, 
an autocracy and there's a very clear leader in Saudi. Um, you know, MBS is at the very top. So help us understand the decision-making process because we have Vision 2030 as the big overriding um, theme for the country as a whole. Um, that that comes down to sport as part of that. Um, but how is that decision process made and how is progress determined as you go back up the heap? Does it Does it stop? below MBS or does MBS very much have the final, yes, this is working, we need to do this, we need to do that? Yeah, I think what, what makes the process work is that the hardest working person in the kingdom is His Royal Highness. He is in everything, he's across everything and and I think that leadership is what everybody gets in behind. The vision is there, the hard work is being done by him, like at the, at the top. He's not just sitting there... You know, directing he, he's in there. He's in there working uh, very closely with all the different layers that you just laid out. But if you think about sport, you think Ministry of Sport. You know, the uh, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz is is doing a fantastic job in in following and 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 delivering on the the vision at the top level. And then when you get below that, you've got all the federations, and then you've got the private sector that sit alongside that. So, you know, we we all understand the North Star and where we're going. And we've all got our roles to play in, in how we get there. Um, so, yeah, so that's that, that's how it works. Danny, what, a, little, a little bit linked to that. A bit. So it's over a year now I started writing about um, what Saudi was going to do in sport. And I think the record shows that I've always had a very open attitude to that new capital coming in. Um, however, uh, others are not like me. And, you know, we've had a week where, for example, I'll use this as an example for you to comment on, Jordan Henderson comes back and the glee, the glee from the London-based media about, uh, you know, what uh, the mistake he made, he's now realised, all that kind of stuff. How much is it a worry for you guys there that so many people um, in Western sport seem to have an issue with Saudi, but they don't have any issue with, you know, what, what could one could equally argue is, is capital that, that is cold coming from Wall Street. How, how much does that bother you that you, you seem to be handicapped much more coming out of the gate? Look, it doesn't bother me at all because I think it, it, every day goes by that those naysayers uh, are put to bed with, just with action. You know, I think, look, Jordan Henderson's situation, I don't know what went down with him personally, but I know a lot of people that moved to different countries to work in different sectors that didn't last very long. Um, you know, it's going to happen in sport. It's probably happening in the oil and gas industry and in the technology industries where people get somewhere and realise it wasn't what they thought it was going to be, whatever that might have been. So, you know, I think there's always a lot of people that will take pot shots. I think Prince Abdulaziz says it better than anyone. He says, judges after you've been here. When you've been to Saudi Arabia and you've seen the conviction and the commitment to change, then it's hard, as I said before, it's impossible not to be convinced as, as to its authenticity. So, you know, I think, I, I don't think as more people get to see what Saudi is really all about from the inside, the, they'll, they'll tell people on the outside because people like me who, who come from Australia and have lived all over the world and are now living in Riyadh and watching all of this with my own eyes, I can, I can provide my own version of, of, of the truth, which is what I'm experiencing. So I, th I think that those things over time will gradually, gradually just drift off into irrelevancy uh, because I think they're irrelevant now, frankly. Danny, you mentioned your, your own international career and you've travelled a lot and been a lot of places. It feels to me that the 21st century, if you look at the, the history of sport of the 21st century, there have been two chapters. There was the chapter that you could probably call China and then you could have the new chapter, which is called Saudi Arabia. And just certainly during my time at HSBC, the world was looking um, at China as, as, as the great knight for sport and I think China was looking at itself as the great night for sport and certainly events I was involved with were being paraded in Shanghai and Beijing as the sort of the future. And you had the Olympics, of course, in 2008. And so uh, <laughs> geopolitics have changed somewhat and China is no longer really on the world stage in sport in the way that Saudi is. Because you've been international and because you've seen that, what are the heffalump traps 
that you think Saudi need to avoid in the next 10 years? Clearly, sport is very much on the agenda. It's very exciting. But what are the, the lessons learned from maybe from the China uh, era and things that you, you might advise um, your paymasters to just be wary of? Yeah, it's a difficult question, actually. I think you're right. There, there, there were certainly some pretty clear eras of commercial influence over sport, um, and, and China certainly had its time. Um, I think from what I can tell, at least, is that building a sporting economy domestically is going to be really important, and it is very nascent, and a lot of the federations are, are re- relatively small. But if we are investing in the sector like we are and we're going to be building the infrastructure, we've got to make sure we build a sustainable economy around sport because, you know, you can't just exist as a, with a, as a cost centre forever. At some point you need to demonstrate you've got, you know, a, a profitable sector that you can look at and say, yes, investing more money in sport is a good thing because it will continue to drive GDP and and drive jobs and and all those things that we know the sports sector can do when you get it right. I'm not sure whether China had that front and centre in their thinking. I don't know. It, It didn't appear that way to me at least. But of course, you know, I spent a lot of time in China like you did, Giles. And, you know, I think they did have a lot of big glamorous events and they had a football league that also... China Super League was a thing there where, you know, some of the best players in the world were leaving high-profile clubs to go play for clubs in China you'd never heard of. Now, you could argue that's what's happening in football, but having a long-term commitment to actually driving sustainable economy around your sport, I think, is, is the key. And I think that's where we'll be focusing, at least in the advice I will provide um, to answer the question. But I think that 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 philosophy is already there in, in the thinking from the Ministry of Sport. Well, Danny, as I officially get to hand the mantle over of uh, jokes that are funny, and you can now you can now be the funny man of the industry for the next two years. There's um, there's certainly going to be a lot of travel. I know that you're going from hither to yon this evening or tomorrow on your travels. So long haul travel, we can all get very very um, sort of preoccupied by the Marvel movie franchise and get lost in utter nonsense. Or or you can read literature. And I know that uh, Roger's book, The Perfect Storm, which has been out, I think, for a couple of months, is available. And Roger's a, a modest man, and as, as Churchill says, he has much to be modest about. But um, Rog would very much like to get you a, a book. Um, so we'll get the details, because I think on your long-haul trips around the world, as people chortle at you in the sort of Morecambe and Wise way of... Uh, get Danny in. Um, this book really is an absolute cracker. And I think, um, Rog, I know we're all enjoying it. It's, it's gone really well. So Rog isn't going to ask you, but we'll get you a copy. Yeah, no, that's very kind. Roger and I had a bit of exchange on that. And I think that having seen some ex- excerpts out of that book, um, obviously not to, to flatter you too much, Roger, the yeah, the, the central thesis that, that runs through that book around shifting direct-to-consumer thinking and how, how you... You, you digitally organise your sport is is central to my thesis now for many years and one that we're going to be taking into many of our, all of our investments. So, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to read the long form. Yeah, and, and I thought you said and, you weren't um, going to flatter him too much. That's way too much. <laughs> Danny, we're, we're, I, I Danny want to make sure he sends me the book. I'm going to make sure he sends me the book. Yeah, yeah, I will. It will be the limited edition one because you know the three of us have decided that it's our version of the old uh, crackerjack pen and pencil. Uh, not not many people, not many people get to come on in, and you know um, the ones that do, I think, should go away with what we think is. Is right. So the limited edition will be coming your way if you send me the details. I have to say, Danny, it is a cracking book. I, I coloured all mine in within the first day I got it. It was fantastic. <laughs> absolutely terrific. With, with crayons or pencil? Yeah. What was it? Yeah, it was absolutely, yeah. absolutely tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Danny, it's been uh, it's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. We know we know you're a very busy... You're probably the, you're arguably the hardest working man in sports right now, the James Brown of sports. But taking this hour out to, to spend with us, we're really appreciative of it. And we wish you the best of luck in uh, in everything you do as you try and navigate you know, what's, what is a very exciting and very and very tricky uh, landscape so best of luck with it all not at all thanks for having me on I love the show keep up the great work thank you Danny oh, thanks Danny well that was terrific thanks for lining that up John I really I really enjoyed that it was uh, you know Danny's um, Danny's a breath of fresh air to me because look we all understand how the 
game works, right? There are there are things that you've got to be careful when you talk about. But I thought I thought he was as open and as honest as as you can possibly be in a, in a role that high profile and that important, particularly in a in a space that is so controversial. Um, I thought that was uh, that was great. I really really enjoyed talking today. What, what a top lad! I would echo that, and I would also say that you know he was very clear about what they're going to do. You know, and some something I've said on two or three shows and and various articles. People don't understand how young that population is, how much of a sporting culture is already there. And, you know, they, with the right strategy and with the capital they've got for any sport that is not centred around Old Trafford and Anfield, I would be pretty confident that Danny Townsend is going to be in uh, certain conversations with all of those sports. Yeah, he's certainly going to be a busy boy and... um... He's a lovely fellow and um, wish him all the very best on his travels. And uh, as I say, he's going to be in every meeting. He's going to have to learn to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. And I suspect the filters are going to be absolutely in overdrive. But top man. And he's going to I think he's going to absolutely, absolutely nail it. All right. Well, listen, our thanks to our guest, Danny Townsend, for uh, a hugely enjoyable hour. And as always, our thanks to you for listening. Um, if you're out there and you haven't got a copy of Roger's book yet, I'm going to do the plug for him because he'll be too embarrassed to do it, but you really should do that. It's a terrific book, Sports Perfect Storm. Um, it's available uh, at Amazon and all good bookshops. I always wanted to say that, even if it's not available at all good bookshops, Roger, I've always just wanted to say it. Um, we will be back with another podcast in the not-too-distant future. Um, if you don't follow us already, you can do that very, very easily. You'll find us on Twitter at EntertainedR. That's the word A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H and you can find me Giles Morgan at Giles Morgan 71 uh, I'd like to just say thank you to Web3 Sports Ventures that wouldn't have happened without them uh, and that's a cracking start for you know what's going to be hopefully a long term partnership with uh, those guys and as always you can find me at RPM Como as in the lake as in the lake gentlemen until next time so